happens when you bring different disciplines together to imagine positive futures? How can film help us explore big ideas like time, identity, and space? I'm Amanda Reeves, and I'm your host for FuturePod today. Working with younger people, working with teenagers, working with people that are in their 20s. I love that because they have such a different perspective on things. You know, we can talk about different disciplines, but there are also differences in generations. That's today's guest, Sabine Winters, a philosopher working at the intersection of science and art. You might know her as the initiator of Future Based an interdisciplinary philosophy platform, bringing people together to explore big topics like expanding consciousness, scientific imagination, time, and things that are. She's joining me today to tell you about it. Welcome to FuturePod, Sabine. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Wonderful. Let's get started. What's the Sabine Winter story? I'm a philosopher of science. I focus on the role and function of imagination in the sciences. So that's my personal research. I did a bachelor in philosophy and a master in philosophy of science. And I founded Future Based in 2018, which is an interdisciplinary philosophy platform. And I work together with a group of freelancers on themes that you mentioned. For example, time, what is time, how can we capture time, can we reflect on time, scale, scientific imagination, and these are very broad themes which help to create a framework in which we do research. So that's future-based. And I started studying quite late. I was mm -hmm. 27 when I started philosophy. I wanted to do something that really made me enthusiastic, that really fed my mind. And from the first lecture on, it really felt like coming home. Mm. So I really loved the people there. I really loved the diversity of people, the diversity of discussions that we had, like the zooming in on texts uh, and then discussing the details, discussing the semantics. So I really enjoyed that. and. What I remember is that in one of the first lectures, actually maybe the first lecture that I followed, was a professor that clearly said to all of us, you are here because of intrinsic motivation and not because you want to earn any money with philosophy, because let's be clear here, there are not really that much <laughs> career options. And it really frustrated me. And what I've learned over the years is that frustration can be a really good catalyst, a really good motivator for doing what you want to do. Mm. And so it really motivated me to prove otherwise. And on the other hand, you have to let go of frustration at some point because it be can become bitterness. So it worked out quite well. I'm really happy with the place that I'm at right now. I work with wonderful people and I now only talk about where I work, but I have also a lovely family. I mm -hmm. have a daughter of eight and my partner and we live in the east of the Netherlands and near the woods. So I'm a, I'm a happy person. <laughs> What attracted you to philosophy? Why did you end up going in that direction? Yeah, so I did attempt to follow a study when I was 21, from my 17th till 21, but I was still very, very young, figuring out a lot of stuff, trying to take care of my own. And that really went with ups and downs. So mm -hmm. doing a study next to that wasn't yeah, it wasn't for me. I really missed a lot of lectures. I didn't get grades. So I stopped that after two and a half years of 
I can honestly say failure. My self-esteem was very, very low at that point. So I decided that academia wasn't for me and I started working and I worked until I was 27 and I worked in the most wonderful places. I always had this like happy-go-lucky, ended up at places with wonderful people, artists and also philosophers and scientists that coincidentally worked also in stores because I worked in clothing stores a lot. At one point I found stability and then I got bored. I got bored with the life I had <laughs> and I thought, well, I might be doing something that I really, really enjoy next to my work, next to my having my income. And so I decided I always wanted to learn philosophy, but I chose psychology because of the career options. And then I thought, well, I'm working. I have my income. I'm happy this way. I only want some mental stimulation. And then I started doing philosophy. And yeah, that was the best choice I made. <laughs> I still really enjoy it. And what I also really enjoy is learning from other philosophers, other thinkers. I consider myself as a very enthusiastic, average philosopher. And sometimes there are these brilliant insights by others and they share it with you and you really feel things click. It's like almost a magical feeling. I always had this idea I want to become, as a child, I wanted to become an astronaut or a wizard. <laughs> and this, this wizard was then living on an attic with a lot of old dusty books. I have something with old dusty books mm -hmm. and I feel that I come the closest to being a wizard <laughs> as I could possibly be. So yes, <laughs> I love that. I don't know if that makes sense, but yes, yeah. <laughs> Not with potions, but just with your thoughts and thinking and discussions. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. So as I told you, I started studying when I was 27 and I got my daughter when I was 30 and she was like the most lovely surprise of my life mm. but it was really tough because i really wanted to prove something as well you know at that point i started doing philosophy mm. and then i was two years in it and i thought i really want to finish this i want to show that i can do this so there's some external pressure i'm very honest in that there's some external pressure as well and at that time, I had to decide I needed to stop. I went to lectures with a very big belly and I couldn't really sit still on these uneasy chairs. It was really uncomfortable. And then I stopped for almost three and a half years studying. And I was so determined to pick it up again. I started studying, working with a family, a young baby, which was really tough. I wouldn't recommend it to my own daughter. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, things happen. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, it's doable. I found it really hard to make the decision. I need to stop now because I have too much stress. It isn't good for me. It isn't good for the baby. It isn't good for my partner, for our relationship. So let's stop. And at that moment, I couldn't really let go of my peers. So we had an app group and we kept in contact. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, well, I'm at home now, why not start writing about philosophy and art? And that's actually how my very first blog began. And then from there, 
I enrolled into the organization of an art fair. And that was really my first assignment. So this pause, what really I thought was the end maybe of, or maybe uh, letting go of this dream of doing philosophy at university became like the starting point of my entrepreneurship. Then after three and a half years, Lola, my daughter, she went to school and to preschool and I found time again to start studying, which was still, I find it very tough. I know moms that do it like easy, but I think it's very tough. And I think parentship is wonderful, but it's also very heavy, mm. very, very intense. So yeah. So that's how it went. (laughs) Studying philosophy, you've got ideas about who we are and our relationship with the world. Hmm. Did becoming a parent have a significant impact on that for you? I think so, yes. I haven't reflected on how, so I haven't reflected on like the pre-mom Sabine thinking about stuff and the after-mom being the mom but it has to almost you know lola is really my the central point i move around her you know as i said i'm a very enthusiastic all of the place person and she really keeps me grounded also in my thinking i think that philosophy teaches me to think more structured lola as well do you think differently about certain issues yes Definitely, like mm. climate change. No, don't even call it change. The crisis that we're in. Mm. Yeah, sometimes I just wonder, oh my God, what kind of world have I brought her into? And sometimes on a more positive note, <laughs> you know, like the wonderful things you can learn or the wonderful things that philosophers or other scientists have written on. I want to share it with her. You know, philosophy can be really difficult, but children can ask you the most difficult questions framed in the most simple sentences. It's like, wow, you know, like, mom, why are we here? Or mom, why is this a yellow flower? Like, it sounds really simple but you can really philosophize with children a lot. It's really like, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I don't have the answer to that. (laughs) I have no idea. And it's really like almost a liberation to philosophize with children. So Lola Mm. really helps me. It's a cliche, you know, but the cliches are there because they are cliches. They really help you to get into the now. Yes. Yes. And sometimes I really need that because I'm in my head a lot. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell me a bit about some of the methods that you use in your practice? Ah, yes. I don't know if this is a method. I don't think so. (laughs) But enthusiasm is something that I really thrive on and mutual enthusiasm is something that I always search for in projects. Mm. This doesn't mean that I always work with extrovert people, but what I search for in collaborations, I always ask my coffee partners because it always starts with drinking a coffee together. (laughs) What do you really would like to work on? 
what is something that you feel you can't really find in your profession or maybe in your research now that you really would like to work on? And then always something comes out. Sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a really off topic, something completely different than their research or profession that they want to explore. And I love facilitating. So what I'm then doing is for Future Based, we always work in series Mm -hmm. and I try to compose a series. So I try to compose a series of a podcast, a gathering, and maybe a publication or three podcast series. You try to find together a form. And as you mentioned, we have these themes going on for a few years, which is a framework. They are very philosophical, you know, time. Gosh, you can frame everything under time. (laughs) But it's something that really helps in communicating, in showing what future-based is, but also composing a program. So for example, I think that it's important to have a certain freedom and at the same time have a theme to help you focus on the topics from an interdisciplinary perspective. So that's really important. I always try to have perspective on the topic from different disciplines. And this really sounds abstract. So let me give you an example. We have time capsule, uh, which is obviously under time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Amanda, you're part of this wonderful time <laughs> capsule. That's I am. wonderful. <laughs> we are gathering all sorts of positive future scenarios. And we will print that in a zine. Lilian de Jong is the curator of the scene and Dana Dijkgraaf will be designing the zine. And we have a gathering somewhere in 2023 and a gathering in 2032 in about 10 years. And what we really wanted to do is because there are so many dystopian futures so many stories that have a dystopian setting and I completely get it. I mean, there's so much going on. And I think that these narratives are really a way for us to control or to grasp or to reflect upon what's happening Mm. in an idealized setting, you know, in a more simplistic setting, such as a Hollywood movie, the day after tomorrow, for example, (laughs) just popping up or don't look up. But I also think that in a way, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, can it can be almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that telling positive stories is super important to make us see the possible alternatives on these dystopian futures. Mm. And that's why we really wanted to make, to publish this in different disciplines. So there are scientists, there are designers, artists, theatre makers, writers, all sorts of different disciplines that bring in these positive futures. And then we really want to discuss about these positive futures and see when, because I still do think that when we go into discussion, there will be like this dystopian narrative sneaking in. So <laughs> <laughs> when we turn into the dystopian setting, and why we do that, you know, why, why we always tend to draw the attention to the dystopian setting. Why do you think we do? Why? I don't know. I don't know. I had a discussion yesterday with someone 
about this and he said well maybe we are just drawn to it because of our evolutionary settings we're hardwired as a warning system mm -hmm. yeah that could be possible i don't really know i think it has to do with some form of sensation sure but i also really think i really think that it also has to do with some form of affirmation mm. of what we are seeing outside what is happening on the news it's almost like a mirror, like, see, this is how it goes, this is what's happening. Yeah, almost like, yeah, like a looking glass. It's like a looking glass. It really magnifies certain aspects, what's happening in the world. Mm. Maybe even some form of preparation almost, you know? Like, ah, I know what's happening then. I know what's yeah. happening now. And you see, really, there are like things happening that Hollywood already foretelled. I know one, by the way, don't look up. Yesterday, mm -hmm. there was like this news. Have you seen it on Twitter? I did watch it on Twitter. Was it BBC, NBC? This news reporter. And she was like, oh, it's just a sunny day. Why do we always have to be like in panic? And literally, I don't know in Australia, but like England was on fire. Spain and France are on fire. Greece. And then you have this clip of Don't Look Up, where she goes like, I'm telling you that the world is ending. And the news report is like, no, let's keep it light. Let's keep it happy. <laughs> and it's like one on one. It's really yeah. disturbing. And on a more positive note, yes, let's do that. Because I'm like, I'm going into this <laughs> dystopian futures myself. On a positive note, there's also Star Trek. You know, mm. they have all these technological inventions. For example, this microwave that prints you your cake when you press a button. And now we have these 3D printers. Yeah. Also the swipe screens, for example. And we have now swipe screens all over the place. So mm. I'm really interested. And this is something that I research also with my podcast, Scientific Imagination, in where fiction meets science and how fiction or imagination is a catalyst, that's the word again, for innovation and discovery. I really find that fascinating. Sabine, I want to ask you about this idea of scientific imagination. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that for our listeners who aren't familiar with it? Yes, of course. So scientific imagination is my podcast about the role and function of imagination in the sciences. I interview artists who are working on the intersection of science and art, designers and scientists on how would they define imagination? And we will never come to a definition that's rather impossible, but I always ask because I'm a philosopher. So I want to know <laughs> what their definition of imagination is. Mm -hmm. And then we go into their profession, what sparks their imagination, how they think that imagination is functioning in their profession. For example, I'm going to interview Freya Blackman, and she's a physicist, experimental physicist at CERN. I interviewed Angelo Vermeulen, who is the founder of Biomod, which is a biology and art collective. Also a very interesting person, by the way. And I interviewed uh, Jan van Eyke. He is a filmmaker. He made Plankton, which is really going viral at the moment beautiful beautiful images of plankton and Ruvimbo Samanga who is a space lawyer a space lawyer yes yes personally I'm really interested not necessarily in space 
industry. I found the structures of the space industry really interesting, but I'm also really interested in astronomy and in the relationship between space, astronomy and human beings. I have a huge telescope here at home and I'm trying to teach myself a little bit more about astrophotography, which is hard. Like I get, <laughs> get only the moon. I have like <laughs> 5,000 pictures of the moon and, and one of Saturn and one of Jupiter, but that's it. I was always fascinated by astronomy and I now have the chance through philosophy to really come in contact with these people and even for a more specific focus, the imagination. And I couldn't be happier, honestly, because I, I wanted to do astronomy, but that was really out of reach for me because of my math insights really didn't like align with my teachers' <laughs> math <laughs> insights. And now I have this chance through philosophy talk about quantum mechanics, about physics, about astronomical discoveries, and it's really wonderful. Yeah, so that's my scientific imagination. In, in autumn, we have, I've organized four film events with Interstellar, The Martian, E.T., we're going to show E.T. as well, mm -hmm. in a telescope, which is a documentary. We are going to show these movies, and afterwards we have talks with scientists about where the fiction meets the science. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, I'm really looking forward. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about this theme, Things That Are? Oh, gosh. <laughs> this feels like such a big, all-inclusive, you know, the entire history of human knowledge theme. I love it. This is the book. It's called Things That Are, and it's by Amy Leach, and it's has a subtitle, Encounters with Plants, Stars and Animals. Mm. And it's a fantastic poetic journey in which she describes all sorts of encounters. One chapter, one of my favorites is called, Please Do Not Yell at the Sea Cucumber, which really sounds absurd. And I love that. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Radical Bears in the Forest Delicious is also another chapter. And what she does is that she really combines scientific insights with personal reflections about how she sees the world. And I really mm -hmm. love that. I really loved the sentence, things that are. And it refers, of course, in philosophy to ontology. This is a topic that I still really want to explore more. It is not something that I already have a project on. So maybe this is an open call. If anyone wants to explore the topic of things that are, or have an idea of things that are, please reach out to me. <laughs> Let's see what happens. We have one podcast series that's called Beyond Human Relations, which is actually in the framework of things that are, mm. I have to say. And Beyond Human Relations is a podcast that it's hosted by Shatana Pai. She's one of the freelancers working for Future Based, and she is wonderful. And she has done interviews with designers who are designing an internet for dogs, thinking about internet for dogs, for example. Uh -huh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what, does, what does an internet for dogs look like? 
No, that was the question that this designer <laughs> asked because like dogs really are not interested in looking, but rather more in using their nose and sniffing. Yeah. And what would they want to do on the internet? Do they want to meet other dogs or do they, you know, what do, what does an internet mean for a dog? So this was one of the topics, but she interviewed also about AI and technology and not what AI is to humans, but what humans are to AI. Mm. So really from different perspectives, it's really beyond the human relationships to the world, but from the animal perspective and from the technology perspective. And this is the wonderful thing, right? If you dive into a topic, and this is also that I want to bring in collaborations when people express to me their wishes for research topics or things that they want to explore. I can facilitate that. And the mutual benefit is that if we go into this topic of choice, a new bubble opens up. Mm. So there's this new fantastic bubble of people that are researching the internet for dogs. <laughs> It's wonderful. And every time we do this with my collaboration partners, a new world opens up. Mm. The same goes for example, a project called Witchcraft Made Science with Lieke Wouters. Mm -hmm. We dove into how witchcraft served as the base for modern sciences. And there are so many artists working on this topic and so many scientists have published about this topic. It's insane. There's so much out there. Another one is psychedelic experiences, which is actually kind of a hot topic at the moment in healthcare. He's called Aiden Leon. He's a philosopher. And we worked on how we can induce psychedelic experiences without the drugs, but through meditation. And we want to do one through movement that will be in spring most probably. And this is also, again, things that are, sounds like a really big framework, a really poetic framework, but it really helps opening up your mind, picking a topic of your choice, where your enthusiasm flows and then diving into it. And always in a series, always in a series. Because I think if you only do one, if you only have one perspective on a topic, then it's not, it's not really satisfying. And you're getting different voices in, giving different perspectives and different explorations in that topic. Exactly, yes. And of course, it's never finished. But if you say we work on a series of three, three is also doable, you know? Like you yeah. say, we work six months on this and then it's finished. So you have a beginning and an end, a series of three. It's really a project, which really works well. And because often future-based is voluntary, people putting their time and efforts in, Sometimes it means that a project will take a little bit longer because family life is there, life is happening in general, or maybe, you know, something called COVID get in the way <laughs> and then yes. we postpone it a little bit and that's all fine, but I really work with beginnings and ends. So sometimes it means that we have to pull the plug out because it's taking too long and then the energy flows out. And that's something that I really am careful with. So when you look around at what's happening at the moment, at this point in time, this exciting 
moment in history to be alive. What emerging futures are capturing your attention? Ah, yes. Difficult question. Challenging question, I have to say. I think I can't really give a general answer because it depends on the bubbles where you're in, right? Mm. You just discussed it. But what I really hope is, and you slowly see these changes coming, that we look more to the ecosystem, not to hoc solutions, but more to a whole, mm-hmm. like how everything is connected. And what I find really important is that I hope in the future, we will be more generously in admitting that we don't know. I hope that we just can say, okay, let's be careful here because I don't know. Mm. I'm not saying that we don't know, for example, if a vaccine works or not. I'm really clear about that. Mm -hmm. But what I do mean is that if we are control freaks and we think we can control nature, that's what I mean. We think that we know how things work, how they are interconnected. Mm-hmm. And we really don't. And also when asked a simple question or when your daughter asks a question that you are fine in saying, I don't know, let's go and research it together. <laughs> you know, being okay with not knowing is something that I hope will return a little bit more. I hope that, yeah, I have to be a little bit careful here because I have a lot of hopes that are also like, maybe we should be careful with generalizing in general. There is a lot happening in technology. As I said, I spoke with Jeroen van der Most, who is a friend of mine, and he's working on quantum mechanics and art. This is also a really emerging field. Psychedelics is something that we really see now as a way of opening up our minds about learning, maybe even a guide to possibilities of new knowledge, which is something really new, or maybe not really new because it was done before, but it returns Mm. now. New in this culture and this time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Speaking about cultures, I hope that we intertwine more, that we emerge more in each other's cultures that soft spokenness Mm. amanda i think being soft spoken there is so much hate on twitter for example oh my gosh i really try to refrain myself from going into the discussion i almost never do and i try to keep in my mind that there is another person on the other side of the Twitter screen and we often forget that. I hope, I really, I don't think that social media is the future. I think there will be other ways. I hope there will be other ways. And having said that, I make use of social media myself a lot um, because it also has the positive side of getting in contact with each other. Hence, we are speaking Mm -hmm. together now. So it has its wonderful sides, but it's also very, very much polarizing. And I hope that that will change as well. So emerging futures, I have, I'm not a futurist, so I don't really have clear perspectives on that, but I have hopes 
and I hear a lot. I talk a lot with futurists. I see there is like this awareness going on and this wish for change mm. and a wish for discussing things together. For example, how the internet looks, how the internet should look and building things with Lego. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice workshops. People are gathering together, especially the generation, maybe even two generations after me, who are really working together for a better future. I have hopes for them because of them. Yeah, they're like 20, early 20s. And I see that they are really taking it seriously and really working together to make improvements and innovations whatever innovations may mean. Mm. But in this perspective, it means like bettering the world. I keep thinking about the break that you had between study and while you were pregnant. And mm -hmm. there was that period where it felt like that was the end of something, but really mm -hmm. it was the beginning of something else. And mm -hmm. I feel there's, there's a sense of that in the world at the moment. Yeah. Like there's, there's this is cliche again, right? Like closing one door opens another, but it somehow is true. It somehow is true. I, <laughs> it works that way. Maybe not always. You know, I'm really aware that I'm saying this from a privileged perspective. But yes, indeed, a lot of doors have closed, are closing for the generations after us. Mm. And they are working very hard to open up new ones. And I can see that. And that's one thing I loved studying in my late 20s and late 30s, actually. I'm 38 right now, working with young, younger people, working with teenagers, working with people that are in their 20s. I still feel like I'm 20 myself. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. And they remind me gently of that uh, every now and then. Mm -hmm. But I love that because they have such a different perspective on things. You know, we can talk about different disciplines, but there are also differences in generations. Absolutely. Um, yes, also important to take into account. So you've given us a really beautiful insight into the breadth and complexity of the work you do and the interesting threads that you follow. When you meet somebody who doesn't necessarily know what it is you do, how do you explain what it is that you do? Well, this changes every time. <laughs> every time I answer, it's something different. But I think I always say that I love thinking about thinking and I love talking about thinking, <laughs> <laughs> which really doesn't help much. But then I try to explain that I talk with scientists about the implementations of technology. I teach film and philosophy courses. So we watch film fragments and then talk about philosophical issues, for example, mm. identity or time or personality or space or exactly when fiction meets science i give workshops on utopian thinking and dystopian thinking yeah i think that is as clear as it might get 
And if people then don't understand what I'm doing, I can't really blame them. But it's like this wide range, this variety of things that I do. And that also really makes me happy working with scientists and artists, writing about art and science. Often I also say that I'm a programmer. So I create programs for theaters or for institutions where scientists and artists talk together and I moderate. Mm. That's the most clearest I can get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a pitcher. I don't like that. (laughs) You don't have your 30 seconds down. (laughs) No, no way, no. (laughs) It changes as you do more things, as you get more insights into what it is you do and why you're doing it. Having an open, evolving pitch that grows as you do. Yes, exactly. And it also really, what you said, like, it also really depends on the bubble where I'm in at that moment. But I think thinking about thinking, programming, interdisciplinary programs is really what I do. My guest today was philosopher Sabine Winters. If you're curious to see the contents of the time capsule, or keen to collaborate on things that are, Get in touch with FutureBased. The contact details will be available in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you'd like to support the pod, please check out our Patreon on the website. I'm Amanda Reeves. Thanks for joining us today. 